Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. My name is Ewan Lawson. Uh, in this episode, I have an interview with Rob Brown. Rob is a runner and a journalist. He's been running some amazing ultras, including the Marathon de Cote, and he has plans to run the Marathon de Sabu next year. Rob is also a type 1 diabetic and has been since he was 13 years of age. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.blocology.io forward slash 016. So we get into lots of things chatting to Rob. First of all, we talk about his diagnosis with diabetes as a 13-year-old and some of the effects that had on him. And we talk a little bit about his running and how he got into it and what it gives him now. We managed to discuss the challenges of uh, managing type 1 diabetes and just some of the day-to-day practicalities that you have to cope with if you're relying on that insulin. We also mention how there are just an incredible number of people around the world who don't have any access to insulin at all. And those are the charities that Rob is really taking part in a lot of these ultras for. We've got lots of tips and discussed lots of um, suggestions for anyone thinking of doing any ultras as well. So there's plenty there for anybody, even if you're not diabetic yourself. But I certainly hope that there'll be lots that if you are a type 1 diabetic, you'll find incredibly useful too. Uh, on another note, I, am, I mentioned last week, I think, that I, there was a slight problem with the iOS app Overcast in the show notes. That has all been fixed now, and I've been tampering with the feed, so everything should be coming through perfectly. Let me know if there are any difficulties at all. So uh, let's get back to the conversation with Rob. And let's crack on. We've talked in the past in the podcast about our early experiences of running, and I wondered what yours were like. Okay, well, I was not—I was never particularly sporty. I'm—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm quite tall. Um, I—I was—I played football when I was, you know, a kid, as most kids do, and I—I I had an advantage over pretty much everybody else on the pitch up until about the age of eleven, because my height would compensate for any lack of skill that I had. Uh-huh. Um, at about the age of 11, um, everybody else <laughs> who was more skillful started running rings around me. And I, I, I quite quite quickly sort of uh, stopped any aspirations to, to, to play sport. I wasn't particularly fast runner at school or anything like that. Um, and I wasn't really very sporty at all um, throughout my life. It was only really in, in my mid-20s, um, probably mid to late 20s, which it happens to most blokes. I think you can eat, you can eat pretty much what you like, um, up until your mid twenties. And then suddenly your metabolism slows down. It's like somebody's pulled a rip cord and your, your waist expands by about two or three, uh, 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 trouser sizes. Um, and I thought, Christ, I better start doing something about it. So it was purely, um, I'm not sure if you can call it vanity, but it, it, it was it was suddenly realizing that I couldn't eat what I what I liked and get away with it anymore. So I started running really as weight control in my late twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do you know three, four, five up to about you know seven or eight miles at a go, and the more I did it, I realized the more the more I got out of it really. Um, it's a great way to sort of decompress after a stressful day at work, sort of put your thoughts in order. Um, you know, really, it, it, almost like a meditation, really, I think, um, is the best way to describe it. So it, it was a really um, 
what I got out of it was more than just physical. It was it was a, a, a place to reflect and a place to enjoy my surroundings and all the rest of it. So the more I did it, the more I wanted to do it. And the distances I was doing um, gradually started to increase. So I think I did my first marathon at the age of 30. Um, I wasn't particularly fast. I wasn't even particularly healthy at that point, I think. I mean, I smoked up until up until I was 30. I think I was still smoking when I, not actually while I was running the marathon, but I was probably having, a you know, two or three cigarettes a day um, up until I was about 30. Mm-hmm. And actually running, <laughs> running was one of those things that actually helped me finally give up because I thought I'm not, I can't, I can't get the most out of running because I'm, 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 I'm smoking. I was never a particularly heavy smoker, but it was, it was that idea of, I think people struggle to give up cigarettes because it's the idea of that you're depriving yourself of something. But, um, the way I looked at it was, um, smoking is depriving me of doing something that I like more, um, which was running. So, um, it was sort of that, flipping flipping that sort of negative view of of giving up smoking to that um positive view if i give up i can do more of this which i which i love doing so um that kind of it's had quite a transformational effect on my um on my life really running so i have a lot to i have a lot to thank it for i think yeah um, that's quite a common story, isn't it? I think that mm. later in life, I, I'm 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 not actually 100 percent sure about the. It's a slight digression. This, but about the mm. metabolism thing in older blokes. Mm. Um, my only I, I, there is there are clearly some changes, but mm. um, I think a lot of it for me, I was it was lifestyle. I kind of the you know, kind of the way you live your life when you're 18, 19 was you know it was very different to how I live my life in my late 20s, and yeah, I, I was just you know I was doing less. I was less yeah. active. Um, and even to down to little things that like I had to do my shopping by pulling a rucksack on and going down to the yeah. supermarket and carrying it all home again. Um, when I was in my early twenties and I got by mm. my late twenties, I was in the car and I was- exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, wh- wh- whether there's any, uh, scientific basis for um, no. metabolism slowing down, but it could be environmental, couldn't it? So, yeah, um, I think that's certainly, the, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I think that the only, the only scientific evidence might be you do, lo- you can lose some, your, your muscle mass peaks and comes back down again. Yeah. Um, so you could, you could, if you're not being active, you would, you probably do lose some muscle mass and that, you know, you're losing some lean, lean muscle yeah. that I guess that would, uh, that will affect your metabolism. But I think yeah. a lot for me, a lot of it's lifestyle orientated, which is why I think I'm kind of, I'm, I, I only mentioned that because it's, if you change your mindset around it and get more active, like running, then mm. it all goes the other way again. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it's had a huge change, you know, a huge transformational effect on, on, on my outlook on life really running. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and what kind of you were doing, how, how often would you do events? I, I don't do events that often actually. I mean, uh, for me, a lot of what running's about is about getting out there on my own and enjoying my surroundings and, um, uh you know being on being on my own I, I suppose at heart i'm a bit of a misanthrope really and i, I like being <laughs> on my own i like i like just in, enjoying where i am and not having to deal with other people too much um yeah which obviously you know as a as a journalist uh, you know based on you, you know 
Um, journalism is based on, on obviously talking to people and hearing other people's stories. So it's quite nice to have that, that, that time for by yourself, really. So um, in terms of events, I've, um, I, I tend to do at least one marathon a year, and that's for the last few okay. years, and then, and then ultra, you know, a few ultra marathons as well. So, um, yeah. And I'm gradually increasing them as I, as I head towards the marathon de Saab next year because yeah. um, I just need to get those miles under my belt. Um, and also it's, it's quite useful actually meeting people and meeting other people who, who, who are going out to Morocco next year to do it. So I'm, I'm trying to think about what events I can do which will set me up for, for the Marathon de Saab. And Marathon de Saab being a, a multi-day event, that's a completely different kettle of fish to a, to a single day event as well. It's, um, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We'll yeah. talk a little bit about that in a minute. Cause it's, um, mm. um, it's going to be, well, obviously it's a great, it's an, a great adventure for anybody. And with the diabetes particularly, it's going to be really fascinating. Excellent. So, um, Rob, the next thing to ask you about is to, if you tell you, tell us a little bit about your diabetes and when that all happened to you and um, a little bit more about it. Okay, so I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was about 13. Um, I, uh, it was around about Christmas time, um, and I, I realized over a number of days that I was getting thirstier and thirstier, this unquenchable thirst, which was just driving me to distraction. I was, I was getting up at night to, to pee all the time, pretty peeing all the time and just drinking all the time mm. um uh my dad who he's not a medical doctor but he's a he's a biochemist so he knew a bit about it so after a couple of days he, he i remember him saying quite vividly oh i hope you haven't got diabetes um <laughs> and quite quickly they took me to my gp and they did a urine test um um on, on one of those sort of color code uh yeah, it's a drip stick that, 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 that you pee on, um, and it should be like a nice pale green. Mine came back like this sort of British racing green color, which indicated that my my urine was was full of glucose, as was my blood. Um, mm. uh, so yeah, my pancreas had packed up, and I was no longer producing insulin. Yeah. Um, so I was taken to hospital. I uh, probably spent about four or five days. I seem to remember in hospital being i mean the, it was it was strange because at 13 you don't really have a you don't really understand the the gravity of what people are telling you that 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 essentially you'll you'll never be able to to live without having injections um again in your life you'll have to test your blood sugar several times a day you'll have to watch what you eat Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember being told that, um, I mean, as, as most, as most young lads, um, do, I sort of dreamt of having a life of adventure. I wanted to join the army. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I wanted to have lots of ad- adventures and stuff. And it was very quickly, you would, you know, I was, I can remember vividly being told, well, you can't join the army anymore. I mean, whether I would. I mean, it'd be very easy for me to say, oh, type 1 diabetes, you know, crushed that dream. I mean, it, mm. whether whether I ever would have joined the forces, I don't know. But um, I think it had quite a big effect on my 
outlook on life quite quickly when suddenly all these doors seem to be closing, being slammed shut, really. Um, so, yeah, I think it being diagnosed at that age is um, is quite a difficult time. There's never a good time, clearly, but um, I think it has quite an effect on how you how you start to view the rest of your life and, and what, where you put your energies really. So, yeah. So I, I spent most of my teens and I'd say early twenties ignoring it really. I, I, I always took my insulin, but I, I, I very rarely tested my blood sugar. Um, I didn't have a hypo. So a hypo is when you, um, your blood sugar level goes too low and it's usually, well, it's, it's a result of giving yourself too much insulin. Um, I didn't have a hypo until my early twenties, which to me suggests I was probably running. My blood sugar level was too high for most of my teens. Um, so when I look back on that, the, the sort of the thoughts of, uh, how much damage I, I potentially could have done myself during those years is quite, it's quite worrying really. But, um, yeah, so that, that, that that's my, that's well, how I was yeah, that, it's a difficult time, isn't it? Cause a lot of type one. So I, I guess for folk listening though, people who have got diabetes will know the difference for those who haven't, have not been involved. I don't have a family member involved. Type one is the one that tends to be, I mean, you do sometimes see older adults, but it's almost inevitably diagnosed in childhood. Um, mm. And often a wee bit younger than thirteen, perhaps. I don't know, actually know what the average age is. I'd have to look it up. But yeah, I, I, I'm. I, I'm not. I mean, I, I do know lots of adults who who can you can it can hit you at any time in yes. y- your life. It's it's an autoimmune disease. So yeah. for whatever reason, your immune system decides it wants to um yeah attack attack the beta cells in your pancreas, um, yes. which will stop them producing insulin. Um, but I I I think adolescent onset is is quite common. Um, yes i think so and that's it's tough as well isn't it but that's a tough period to suddenly when just when you're about to find your way in the world all these things are happening in terms of adolescent development Mm. suddenly to have diabetes type 1 diabetes thrown at you is a really um yeah a really hard thing it's it's tough but yeah um you've got to you've got to find your find a way i mean I, i think one thing that people don't appreciate um I think, I think it's probably. I may, I may be wrong. I may, I may be speaking out of turn here. But most other chronic disease, chronic illnesses, the care and the management of it is in the hands of healthcare professionals. <laughs> in the case of type one diabetes, it is n- nearly completely down to the person who suffers from that condition, diabetes. In that, you are responsible for testing your blood sugar. You are responsible for how much insulin you give yourself. Um, and that will vary from day to day, from hour to hour, because there are just so many variables that will affect your blood sugar level. Mm. Um, it's not just what you eat. It's not just how much exercise you do. It's how much adrenaline there is in your body, how much cortisol, yeah. um, the fat content of what you're eating, you know, if you're eating mm. fattier food, that will slow the absorption of glucose into your blood system. Um, the weather will affect it. Whether you're ill will affect it. Um, there, there are so many variables that will affect how you, um, how quickly the, um, the, the, the food you eat um, is converted. You know, the, the glucose from what you yeah. eat goes into your blood system. Um, yeah. And, it, it's quite it's quite a burden on on the person 
who has diabetes because the management of that condition is nearly completely the sole responsibility of the person who has it. Um, yeah. Uh, at least that's my experience anyway. So it has quite a, um, yeah, it has quite a psychological impact as well, I think, which is sometimes not appreciated I, I, uh, as much as it should be by, um, by, by, by people, I think. But, um, yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a fair comment. And um, mm. perhaps one of the things as a doctor, the, you know, particularly when you're a junior doctor in the hospital, mm. and certainly if you do pediatrics, and I did pediatrics for a while, is that um, you always see these brittle diabetics or kind of young people, young adults who are not coping and not managing to look after it themselves, who ping around and things get very out of control. And I guess they're the they're the, they're the extreme end of the spectrum, but they're people that that kind of psychological burden has just perhaps overwhelmed them a little. Um, and it's that I mean, and because I think it is a really massive burden. It is, and, and to assimilate all that at that age is incredibly hard. But it's incredibly hard at any age to get used to doing, as you say, all the variables. And it's very much a. It's very. I know you can always put people into, you know, scientific studies tend to lump people together. But as you're inferring, diabetes is a kind of n equals one. It's a disease of one person. You, you know, you're you're the way that you react to stress affects even during your day-to-day stress, more adrenaline yeah. surging around is going to affect what your blood sugars do. So there's a exactly. really, this is highly personal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, it's quite interesting. I was talking to uh, somebody last week who's developing, um, an artificial, artificial intelligence to help, um, mm. type one diabetics, um, try and try and c- kind of compute all those variables and, and, yeah. and, and work out how, how much insulin they should be injecting based on their circumstances that day. Um, and, 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 and what the, uh, so she was, she's a robotics engineer with type one diabetes. And she was, she was essentially saying that, yeah, it's completely individual, you know, carb, carb counting do- doesn't, well, it, it, it works to a point, but it, it, it can't work completely because everybody is different. Everybody's metabolism works at, at, at a different rate. And that, that rate at which it works will depend on so many things, how hot you are, how cold you are, etc., mm. etc. Et that it's, there's only one person who can really manage your type 1 diabetes effectively, and that's yourself. So yeah. it's a huge responsibility. Um, yeah. And it can be quite heartbreaking when it goes wrong and it, it, it will go wrong inevitably. It's, yeah. you know, I've had it, I've had it for 27 years now and I feel like I'm failing with it every day, even though my doctors who, like you say, see the very extreme end of when things go wrong with type one diabetes, people with, you know, kidney failure, blindness, mm. amputation and so on. So they see my levels and they think, oh, we, we, you're doing really well, excellent. But but when I see my blood sugars going up and down like a roller coaster, I, do, I don't feel like I'm succeeding with it at all. So yeah, it's yeah, yeah it, it, it's tough. But hey, we are so lucky, and anyone in this country to live in a in, in a country with a national health service. You know, put mm. politics aside, all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. We are so lucky to have a a, a service that provides us with the with the medication that we need. I mean, if I think 27 years ago, I was having to mix my insulin in a syringe, work out the ratios of you know how to mix um, fast acting and slow acting insulin together. In a few months' time, I will 
I hope, have an insulin pump, which will be drip feeding me insulin throughout the day and should massively help me control my my diabetes more easily. Yeah. You go over to the United States and you don't have adequate insurance, you could end up spending $800 a month on your insulin just to stay alive. And people are dying in the United States. People are dying across the world because they can't get access to insulin. So you have to put it all in perspective. It's very easy if you're, if you're living with type 1 diabetes to, um, to get down in the dumps and get depressed about it. But um, yeah. you need some perspective. Half of the world's type 1 diabetics don't have access to insulin. And without insulin, they die. And it's not a very nice death either. So no. I, I, I have to count myself um, as very lucky, really. So, um, And I yeah. think that's a point I wanted to make, actually, kind of is that just for folk that are still not still not absolutely 100% certain, the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes is a really key here, that type 1 mm. is if you don't have insulin, you die. There's, mm. there's no getting away from that. Type 2 diabetes is tends to be a disease that comes on later in life when people are overweight and obese. Mm. And there isn't... You know, there isn't enough insulin to go around the body is often the way that's put it. That is, yeah. that it can be more complicated than that. And yeah. actually, the majority of type two diabetics don't need any insulin, though some will be on insulin in some circumstances. So there are some lessons that can be drawn across that. Type one diabetics, if you don't have insulin, that's it. You're toast. That's it's. There's no exactly. There's yeah. no getting away from that. I know that you've done. You're, uh, I think you're sort of, you've certainly done some charity work, or you're doing some work in charities, particularly that to help those people who can't access insulin. Yeah, I mean that's and that kind of links us back to the running, really. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm cam I'm campaigning for three charities: um, uh, T1 International, mm-hmm. which um, campaigns and advocates for type one diabetics across the world. Um, uh, so their mission really is uh, they, their tagline is insulin for all. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, like I said um, earlier, half, half of the world's type 1 diabetics don't have access to insulin. Um, so they're doing some really great work um, in Africa. But in Kenya, for example, what they do, they, they help, they, they, they've helped form groups. So type 1 diabetics in Kenya have grouped together and they've used their buying power as a group to be able to access insulin um, and medication Blood test strips being an, another key thing yes, that type 1 diabetics need. Um, they group together. They use their collective buying power to, in, in order to be able to, to, to buy these medications um, at lower prices. Um, and I, I think that's a good pragmatic way of um, helping people in that part of the world um, access the medication um, that they need to stay alive. Of course, they're working but longer term solutions for people in those country in those countries talking to you know governments etc to um actually try and provide better healthcare provision for people living with type 1 diabetes they're also campaigning in the united states where the price of insulin has more than tripled in a decade um <sighs> and there's some yeah it's just it's just bonkers at the land of the free yeah there's people there's people living there who have seen the price of medication they need to stay alive more than triple in a decade there are there are stories of people diluting their insulin to make it last longer there's people stories of people going abroad to buy their insulin at lower prices and then coming back into the united states to um 
you know, to, to stockpile it, essentially. And Rob, is that because there's been significant changes in the way they're producing that insulin in terms of being more like kind of recombinant human insulins, or is it just simply market forces and it's your worst face of capitalism, my, kind of, <laughs> you know, that what my, they're, they're pro- my, my, charging my, what the market under- can stand? My understanding is that it, it, it's profiteering, pure and simple. Yeah. Um, there is, there, there clearly are, is an argument that, um, you know, insulin is becoming more sophisticated and they, they you know, the, the types of insulin you can get now are a world away from what they were yeah. a decade ago. But I, I think it would be a very weak argument to say, oh, right, the price of insulin has tripled because it's become more sophisticated. Yeah. And really, it, that defies the point of, uh, of making a medication more sophisticated and effective if you price out your 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 consumer from that market that makes absolutely no sense so you know if you if you have all the insurance you need you're fine but the thing is more and more people uh they're dying because they can't afford insulin in the united states it's just bonkers and it's a healthcare system problem isn't it and uh, but uh, you know drug companies are fundamentally malignant in that regard because they just run the they run the numbers model it Mm. you know even if a quarter of people can't afford it. They're charging three times as much. They still make more money. So uh, yeah. they're entirely they're entirely cynical in that regard. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I, so I mean, the great thing about the NHS is, and so we might as well big up the NHS. That as mm. you know, if you need hormone replacement, that's one of the criteria criterion that allow you to get free prescriptions. So you you mm. get your insulin and you you don't pay. Either. Exactly. Yes. Um, so so it's um, an incredible system. It is. It is. Um, yeah. Mm. I can't, you know, that of course the NHS have, has its issues. Um, and if, if you have type one diabetes, you have to deal with doctors and, and pharmacists <laughs> and hospitals more than most people do. And it's very easy to, um, to become disheartened and, 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 <laughs> and angry about the system, but you have to put it in perspective the, 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 at the end of the day, we have this system and it needs to be, it needs to be protected with, um, all that, all that no, no system's perfect I'm, sorry, I'm, on a, I'm on a soapbox now so no, no, okay. well, no, you're gone. absolutely right no system's perfect and I, we've been yeah. i've been at the my family have been at the patient receiving end recently and there are no right. there's no question there are frustrations um yeah. in any system so um let's let, let's get into the running tell us a little bit yeah. more about that so what i get one of the first thing i want to ask is really about the running is how do you manage your nutrition on long runs on the actual runs because I, I guess the fear is hypos isn't it that's what people are scared that's- of as that's type that's one diabetic. Big. You're going to go out running. You're scared of your having a hypo. And what's your experience mm. of that? How do you go about managing that? Okay, so I eat. Um, I tend to. I it, it depends on the time of day, as always. Um, uh, but usually, if I'm going for a long run, I'll load up on porridge with some nice whole milk um, mm. to start with, and I will cut my dose of insulin. Whenever I eat, in, whenever I eat food, I need to give myself insulin. The insulin allows the uh, glucose to get where it's needed, which is the cells. So cells need glucose in order to in order to operate. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're exercising, you generally need a lot less insulin. If you give yourself too much insulin, your your blood sugar level will plummet, um, and you will pass out into a 
shaking, quivering <laughs> mess. So, uh, and you'll, let, you'll need someone to come and scrape you off yeah, off the ground. Yeah. So actually, Rob, just for a second, tell have you, you're a bit, you said you didn't have a hypo until you're like you kind of in your early twenties. Yeah. What 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 is a hypo? I mean, so hypo short for hypoglycemia. It's when your blood sugar mm. drops, and we've all had that experience of feeling a little bit waffy, and we, mm. you know, we might talk about being a bit hypo, but that's slightly blasé compared to the full on experience of a proper full on hypo. And uh, I wonder so perhaps my, you could describe yeah. what that feels like. Sure. So my first hypo was at night time. I was sorry in the morning. I was woken up. I was about twenty one. I was still living at home with my parents. My mum came in my room to wake me up because I was late I'd, I had to be at work um and I I finally got up I was glassy-eyed I was making no sense um and my mum thought I'd been taking drugs and actually called the doctor and the doctor being a family friend came came round <laughs> to see to, to see what was wrong with me essentially um and I it took me about 40 minutes to come round she did my mum gave me some food and I did finally come around. It is uh, having a hypo is like, is like being on another planet really. Um, I actually, let me, let me rephrase that. Any high, any hypo is different. There's no, there's no two hypos the same. Um, really. Um, I've had hypos where I've been fitting so violently. I've, I've cut my legs on corners of furniture. Um, I've been biting. It's it's. You can have really fierce convulsions when you're hypoing. Mm. You can be. You can become completely um, delirious. Um, I've had sort of revelations. Um, I can remember once thinking. Well, I think actually it's probably the most serious one I ever had. My my blood sugar was under one. Um, mm-hmm. So one mm. OL. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what that stands for, but it yeah, should minimals. be between five, five and eight. Yeah. Um, and I can remember th- it having a very strange experience thinking that my thoughts were echoing into eternity. And this was, I was standing on, on the, on the breach, on the brink of death and it was awful. And I, I only came round when, uh, an ambulance, a paramedic, uh, gave me a glucagon uh, shot which is the uh, the hormone which um yeah. encourages your liver to, to to release glucose into your blood system um so you they can be really scary basically you yeah. do not want to have a hypo you certainly don't want to have a hypo when you're out on the south downs which well yeah exactly like running on your own i mean i think that's the the, thing, yeah that's the thing about hypo and it's scary but i mean deadly as well uh, they, yes. they can kill yeah. you so they're they're kind of they're 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 really people are fearful of them aren't they yeah and uh, and i think i think the um a big danger of hypos is one of the first things to go is your your ability to make sound judgments yeah. and it's a bit like being being drunk or yeah. on drugs or something because you you will tell yourself I, I, if that's something i often do when i'm hypo i tell myself i'm not hypo you kind of bury yourself, you bury your head in the sands. Yeah. Um, so you cannot do that if you're running long distances on your own. Um, and I think actually yeah. that might be, what might be one of the uh, reasons I like running so much is because it allows me to be on my own. It allows me, it, it, mm. it allows me to prove to myself and to the world that even though I have type one diabetes, I can, I can be individual. I can go out and do things on my own steam, and I don't need 
people around me constantly asking me how my blood sugar level is. Have I eaten something? Yeah. Have I given myself too much insulin, not enough insulin, all the rest of it. But yeah. with, with that comes huge responsibility. So yeah. I have to make sure I eat enough when I start and do not give myself too much insulin when I start yeah. because that will re result in a hypo. Mm -hmm. I, I, for the first hour of running, so long as my blood glucose has been on the higher end of the range that I want to be in it. So um, I sort of aim for a blood glucose reading of, between nine and eleven, when I start a long run, okay, which is higher than I would normally like, but I think when you know you're going to do a lot of exercise, it, it, it makes sense to be at the higher end of the spectrum because then that gives you some room for your blood sugar to to fall as you exercise, which it inevitably will if you're doing aerobic, um, steady exercise. Mm -hmm. um, I will then test my blood sugar. Uh, so not normally for the first hour, so long as it's it, it's been um, an okay reading to start with. And then between every 20 minutes and half an hour from then on, I will be pricking my fingers to make okay, sure my Okay, so you, you, do, you do it really quite regularly, even when you're out on the long ones. Yes, yeah, because um, I really don't – I. I, 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 you know, I've got three young kids. I've got yeah. a wife who worries a, lo a lot about me, and I, I – I sort of put them through enough, you know, it's not just me that has type one diabetes. It's my whole family really. Cause they have to, they have to put up with my mood swings and, and, and all the, all the rest yeah. of it um, that comes so, in. So is that, yeah. that kind of 20, 30 minutes? Is that something you've just, you've done for yourself? You feel it's about right for you or is it something you've picked up elsewhere or been advised to do in terms of diet type one diabetes? No, and that, that's, I, I think that's me. It, it, that's, I, that's what I, that's what I'm comfortable with doing. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I said pricking my fingers. I'm lucky, l luckily enough, in the last couple of months, I've been, I've started a trial of a, what's called a continuous glucose monitor. Right. So I now, I now have a chip in my arm, which, which measures the, the glucose molecules in my interstitial fluid. Yep. Um, so I can now just scan a chip in my arm with my, with my phone and it will give me a reading with, of what my how much glucose I have in my that my is system. completely so, outrageous. Yeah, so um, <laughs> it, that's completely changed. Uh, it's made it a lot easier, really, to keep on top of of yeah. what your blood glucose is doing. It's um, it's it's not a panacea. I mean, it, no. it has its it has its faults. Um, and something I wasn't prepared for actually was having that continuous glucose reading. It, it really opens your eyes to how how much of a roller coaster your blood sugar level can be throughout mm -hmm. the day. Um, so I wasn't really, <laughs> wasn't really uh, expecting to see that. So I'm just looking at it now. It shows that I've been in range for 49% of the last 24 hours, which um, isn't, isn't ideal, but you know, with, without, with that data, it means you can act on it and hopefully improve it forward. So, yeah. Yeah. But, and I mean, one of the things that we must say about is that actually, uh, when you think about the complications of diabetes, the risk of damage to your blood vessels and all that kind mm. of thing, actually being physically active and running is really more important than, than ever, isn't it? You know, it's, it's yeah, incredibly think, important, yeah. something like running that type one diabetics don't feel afraid to go out and get exercise because the most of the population isn't active enough, but type one diabetics have got an enormous amount to gain from it. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, at my 
my physical health, my 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 mental health. Basically, the, the, mm. you can't lose anything from getting it, going outside and, and, and being active. I never finish a run, even if I've been running through the the pissing rain in the in the freezing cold. I still always come back inside thinking. I'm glad I did that. I never finish a run thinking I wish I hadn't done that. Um, yeah, you have so much to gain from it. Um, I, interestingly, I was looking at a paper just on um, physical activity and type one diabetics, and there is there doesn't seem to be a huge amount out there. Actually, there was a paper in this was a paper in Diabetes Care, and right. it showed that if you are more physically active, you tended to have a better HbA one C. So mm. those are type, you know diabetics out there all know what that is, and that's just this yeah. sort of measure of long term diabetic control. Yeah, that tends to get used. Uh, they have mm. less diabetic ketoacidosis, which is when your blood mm. sugar gets high and out of control. Better BMIs, yeah. your lipids are better as well. A mm. um, little bit, blood pressure also better. And interestingly, they got fewer severe hypoglycemic episodes. Oh, uh, really? Okay. Yeah. That's interesting. Quite significant, I mean, I, it's quite significantly yeah. associated. Yeah. I, 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 I certainly have fewer hypos or fewer severe hypos than I used to have. Um, now, thankfully, touch wood, I don't think I've needed... I certainly haven't had any paramedics out for at least four or five years. So, yeah. um, but there's a brilliant bit of yeah. if you're a doctor listening or you're a kind of a type mm. one diabetic out there and you're worried about hypos exercising, the evidence actually suggests if you get out and do regular exercise and you're more active than the average person, mm. you're going to have fewer hypos in the long run. And that seems to be, you know, you're, you're in that position as well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, like I said, there's, there's precautions you have to take, yes. which is one, reducing your insulin. Two, making sure you, you you eat beforehand. In most cases, I actually find if I go out first thing in the morning, um, I can run on an empty stomach. And right. actually your, your blood, I find my blood is less, is much more stable if I exercise first thing in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, I never, ever, ever go running without glucose on me and a fair amount of glucose as well because you okay. don't know what's going to happen and it, especially if you're going on a long run you need to have you need to have backup because you don't know you know if it let's just say it, you find yourself battling a really cold northerly headwind unexpectedly mm. that drop in temperature can have an impact on on on, on your blood sugar level yeah and you want you need to be able to take glucose to 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 um in response to any, any yeah. hypo so. yeah certainly that's got to be advice for any type you wouldn't you certainly wouldn't recommend ever going out to exercise if you're a diet type one diabetic without some um no. some emergency glucose in your pocket yeah i mean other other things to think about actually uh, more practical things if you if you if you have uh, you know if you're pricking your fingers to um test your blood make sure you have a towel make, mm. i use a plastic bag to you know if it's if it's if it's raining it's very difficult to get get uh, you know prick your fingers and get a, a reading if it's absolutely hammering down with rain. You need yeah. to keep your hands dry. You need to keep your hands warm as well. It's very difficult to mm. squeeze any blood out of your fingertips if you're freezing cold and and, and wet. Um, I did a great race last year called uh, Man versus Horse, which is a absolutely mental run in mid Wales, where about a thousand people. Um, race through the welsh mountains being chased by 60 people on horseback um <laughs> uh and it was at proper welsh weather so absolutely hammering down with rain and i just could not test my blood sugar because my hands were soaking and i was quite even though it was june i was quite yeah. cold so i had to i had to there was a st john's ambulance 
ambulance and I had to go in there to, in order to, just to dry my hands off and actually test my blood to, to, to keep an eye on how my, how my blood sugar was doing. But, um, yeah. 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 So that's important. Um, so t- mm. tell us a little bit about your diet, your diet in general, because I know you've written a little bit about this and your experience with kind of low carbs. Yeah. Now I, I was probably low carb for about three years. I'm not anymore. Okay. Um, I, one reason I started it actually was to lose a bit of weight, which I did. It's a very effective way of losing weight. I found anyway, at least for me, um, I also, because I was taking less carbs, um, reduced my insulin intake by about two thirds. So, and my thinking at the time was, I think it's, I, I read somewhere that, um, when you inject insulin, there is a proportion of the insulin is not effective. And that, that can be between, um, let me try and, I don't, I don't want to make sure I'm uh, making sense here. Um, between 10 and 30% of the insulin that you inject, um, is, it, is not has no effect on, on on your blood sugar level so it can be between 70 percent and 100 percent effective and that will vary depending on where you're injecting that insulin all, all these other all these other variables so by reducing the amount of insulin you take you then reduce that variability in in how much of it is effective for your body so if you're reducing the amount of insulin you're taking because you're reducing the amount of carbs you're taking my thinking was that should allow me to control my blood sugar more effectively. Now, I think to start with, I did see some benefit with that in that respect. But I think what I was what I was neglecting was that effectively. And you're you're the doctor, you, and so maybe you <laughs> you, you can tell me if I'm talking bollocks or not because I'm a I, I'm a, a media type um, uh, art graduate um, with, with very very little science background. But my understanding is that ultimately the body will break down anything you eat, whether it's carbohydrate, fat, or protein, into glucose. Um, but the, the carbohydrate is, is done is broken down into glucose much more easily because that's the most readily um, accessible form of uh, 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 of sugars for the body. So if you're if you're eating carbohydrate, it's it's a lot easier. For the for you to predict how quickly that carbohydrate will yeah will, will result in, a, in in glucose going into your blood system. If you're eating fat and protein, more fat and protein as a substitute for carbohydrate, that will ultimately be broken down into glucose by the body. But it's a lot more difficult to um to work out the rate at which it will be transferred into glucose. Okay. And I think that's what I, what I found. I found it's at the more I did it, the more I ate, I ate compensated or replaced carbohydrates for fat and protein, the harder I, I found it to predict what, okay. what will happen into my, my blood sugar levels. So yeah. ultimately I decided I need that. I need to be able to predict how yeah. quickly my blood sugar level is going to rise after eating and also you know you the amount of planning it took in order to be able to eat so you know any snack food any convenience food it tends to be carbohydrate based um 
if you want snacks and you're on a low carb or uh, low carb, high fat, high protein diet, you need to boil a dozen eggs every night just to ensure that you've got snacks for that. Yeah. And that will have impact on your digestion and all, all the rest of it, which I won't go into. But um, <laughs> you have to be very, very disciplined in order just to make sure that you've got enough food to to eat, um, you know, high fat, high protein. Um, so that was one of the reasons I stopped, stopped doing that. The yeah. other reason is if I'm going to the Sahara Desert to run 150 miles, which I am next year, what the hell am I going to eat? which is low carb, which is going to not melt into a big sticky mess in the bottom of my rucksack in the you know 50 degrees Celsius heat I'll be running in. Um, and also, will I be able to physically carry enough fat and protein in my pack, which I'll have to carry all the food I need for the, for the week that I'm running the Marathon de Saab? Um, it was just, it's just not practical. Um, and yeah. I think the, 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 the benefits to my blood sugar level, the longer I did it were negligible. Okay. So yeah, I knocked it on the head about a year ago. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Cause I know there's a few articles on your website about it mm. and your low carb mm. experience, but it's interesting that I hadn't picked up that you'd, you'd now just no, the I, practical I'm, problems have overwhelmed yeah. that in the end. Yeah. I'm long overdue an update on that, on why, why I stopped, um, yeah. eating, stopped that low carb diet. Um, that doesn't, mm. that doesn't mean I... I think current advice is, is it still 50% of your calories should come from starchy carbohydrate? If that's, is some, it, I, I'd have to look quite, up exactly. I'm not sure yeah, off the top of my head. It's, I, it's quite a high proportion. And I, I do actually aim for less than, yeah. probably less than is, is, is normally recommended for, for carbohydrate because I don't think you need that many carb, carbs. Yeah, well, I, I don't think I do anyway. Yeah, so. I think there's lots of there's lots of things to unpick there. It's really interesting. I, I agree. Mm. I think most people have too much, too many carbs mm. in their mm. diet, and that they would benefit from reducing the number of carbs. Whether you go all the way, I was curious as to what you did because on a low carb diet, in terms of how you did manage when you were out running, or if you had a hyper, I presume you still had some emergency glucose. Exactly. Um, and, and, and yeah. Um, and you know one of one of the one of these ideas that you you hear a lot about at the moment is is ketogenic diets where yeah um, my understanding again a lay, layman's understanding is that you 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 start using your body fat as a, a source of energy rather than the the, the, the glycogen stored in your your yeah. muscles um, now to, to, in order to get into ketosis you need to um, you need to stop eating carbohydrates um, yes. because your your body will start your your body will use the most easily accessible form of of energy first to 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 burn to to create energy. Um, so you stop eating carbohydrates, and then your body will start converting fat into energy. Um, the problem with me was that whenever my blood sugar went low, I would, out of necessity, have to eat glucose yeah. so i i mean i i don't know I, I i'm not an expert i don't purport to be an expert but my my thinking was well if i'm having to take glucose particularly when i'm running surely i'm no longer in ketosis so i'm just kind of in this 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 hinterland i i'm, yeah. I'm I, am i in ketosis am i not um where am i really i i, yeah. I didn't know and, and really the 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 benefits to my blood sugar control weren't weren't enough to to continue doing it really so um well that, that yeah, some... that's the kind of the ultimate test isn't it it's those mm. kind of long-term measures whether they yeah. made a genuine difference for all the embuggerance mm. of actually having to do mm. it um I'll... yeah indeed 
Yeah. Um, there's an interesting. So there's a couple of things there. So I mean, ketosis is the you know the thing that diabetics often uh, you know on the other side of hypoglycemic ketosis mm. is the other end of the spectrum. When you're on the low carb diet, do you were you dipping your urines to look for ketones or anything like that, or do you? Do you know what? I wasn't. I mm. wasn't. I've. I've. Yeah. I I, th- I think because when I was as as I mentioned earlier, when I was a teenager, I kind of buried my head in the sand, and I I wasn't actually aware of the need to test for ketones until a couple of years ago when I really started, you, you know, thinking, right, I re- really need to take control of this. Um, yeah. And I very rarely test for, for ketones. Um, yeah. I think if, so, your, if your blood sugar is okay, then mm. there's no real great requirement. And mm. it's a slightly interesting thing with the low carb, that kind of, you know, you basically, if you're, if you're metabolizing fat, you're using a different metabolic pathway to generate energy. Mm. And the, the, the side effect of that are the ketones. Mm. That's one of the byproducts. And that's mm. why they smell. That's why these people smell funny. And mm. um, <laughs> you know, that that pear drops smell? yeah, the pear yeah. drops breath and all that sort yeah. of that kind of. Yeah. Now, a lot of people who go on it, once you get over that initial, I think there's an initial hump, isn't there, of getting into mm. it? That kind of getting once you go into ketosis, and once you get a, a few days past it. For me, mm. one of the biggest challenges seems to be it's just making it fit into your lifestyles, particularly around a family or exactly. uh, other things. It's really it's really mm. tricky. And as you mentioned there, as soon as you do anything else. Mm. Um, carbohydrates are a ready source of um mm. you know useful energy mm. um and it gets complicated after that and so unless you're seeing significant benefits in terms of your longer term glycemic control gosh, mm. it seems like a lot of work unless it's making you feel absolutely fabulous while you're on it yeah i think i think you really need to live like a monk if you you you, you need to be <laughs> completely um focused on that and and really you know most people have have lives to live really don't they so yeah. um yeah yeah so tell us a little bit about prep- yeah, rest, tell us, yeah. in terms of your lives to live well you, obviously you're after you know you may not have life of adventure beckons with the marathon de Saab. Mm. what what you tell us a little bit about your preparations for that right so i uh a couple of weeks ago i did my first multi-day event which was it's called the marathon de cote which mm. was the the first ever attempt to run um the entire pembrokeshire coast path in three days so that's 186 miles in three days over some of the probably some of the most punishing coastal terrain you can get in this country um i'd say um i didn't complete it three of us started only one person finished um an amazing guy called rich simpson uh a career career soldier um amazing guy running machine (laughs) i made i made it to 107 miles i had to pull out on the third morning um my my knee thankfully it's it's not it's there's no long-term injury it just it just would not put up with the punishing downhills um yeah. after 107 miles so um i made a decision to pull out at that point um sort of bearing in mind that it, this wasn't my sort of ultimate goal this was kind of a, a, a trainer for the marathon oh, yeah, that's a but, tremendous achievement yeah. to get that far around and certainly you must have what what kind of lessons do you think you've picked up for the mds oh so so many i'm, I'm just writing a post on that at the moment actually yeah. but um my main my main learning actually is that fitness is only one thing <laughs> that you have to you have to nail if you're if, if you're doing a multi-day ultra marathon um your kit is so important, not just having the right kit, but making sure it's in the right place at the right time so that you don't have to keep constantly stopping to 
get whatever it is you need at that point in time from the depths of your bag, making sure your um, your 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 kit bag for when you finish in the day is packed properly so you can access everything easily and you're not constantly yeah. taking everything out of your bag to find <laughs> that one clean warm pair of socks you know you've got somewhere there and then closing putting it all back um so yeah kit look after your kit and the yeah, kit will look after you that soldiers say uh, yeah exactly definitely <laughs> um sleep um i mean i know this sounds blindingly obvious but for someone you know, who has a busy, busy life, three kids, wife runs a business, all the rest of it. Um, I started the first day of the marathon to cope, having had about 20 minutes sleep the night before. <laughs> um, and yeah, I did wonder that because I, I think you're on Twitter or something. I saw a message yeah. and you replied and it was very late yeah. and you said, I think you said you're off at 4am or it's actually yeah. starting running. Yeah. 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 That, that was it. It was, it, yeah, it was, I mean, it was a combination of nerves, yeah. um, but it, it was also, I, you know, I really should have made the trip to Wales a day earlier so that yeah. I wasn't driving 200 and something miles to get there. Um, you know, it was, I, I should have been, I should have made sure that I was in, in a bunkhouse on my own the night before, not, you know, one of my best mates came up to, um, support me on, on the race. We don't see each other that often anymore so inevitably we we stayed up and had a chat um the night before so yeah. it was just yeah i think i think that's sleep, right it's, yeah. i mean you're always going to lose a little bit of sleep before a big event mm. like that but yeah it's, it's like if you really don't get much it's like starting the event with a hangover um, exactly yeah 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 that's which is quite um, tough yeah yeah um what else what else did i learn um um pace yeah um pacing yeah. i kind of have <laughs> And, and this is what uh, my, my next big one is the Snowdonia 100 in September. And I'm, I've had a couple of, couple of weeks sort of rest and recuperation after the marathon to cope, but, um, training starts in earnest for that one or, or restarts, uh, this week for, for, yeah. for Snowdonia 100 and pacing is a key thing I need to work on. Um, I kind of have this, I'm a bit like a puppy really when I'm running if it's flat or if it's downhill I tend to run as fast as I can and keep running until I can't run anymore <laughs> which is stupid really um so uh my key thing I'm going to be doing over the next few weeks is is teaching myself to consistently uh they call it power hike so it's yeah it's just over a normal walking pace um uh, uh uphill downhill on, on the flat so i'm, I'm going to be teaching myself to, to to sort of power hike at about four four and a half miles an hour consistently for five six seven hours just so that i can get yeah. i can teach myself what it feels like to be consistently working at a pace of around four or five five miles an hour yeah um and that's what really what I learned from 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 Rich, the guy who completed the marathon to coat. He was so methodical about yeah. his pacing. He he he. It was awesome to see him actually. He just he just he just powered on through through the hills at a really, quite a slow but steady pace. Metronomic. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, he was impressive. The other thing is to to, to work on my uh, on my technique with with trekking poles. Yeah. Um, because I, I know lots of run, lots of runners are you know there's there's a bit of a split in the running community about um <laughs> about about trekking poles, 
But what really brought it home from home to me, and it, I think it, it 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 would sell them to anyone, any any skeptic of polls, is to stand on your um on your bathroom scales, look at how much you weigh, and then get your poles out and just lightly put them on the floor, you know, hold hold them as if you're about to set off hiking or, or, or running, and you will lose between five and fifteen kilos of your body weight. Um, depending on how hard you're pushing into the floor with your yeah. with your trekking poles. Now, if you're running for 100, 100 plus miles, those 5 to 15 kilos um, less yeah. on your knees and your quads and your ankles and everything else um, will make a huge difference, really. And I wonder if I had my pole technique yeah. nailed, I think my knee would have held out for longer than yeah. 107 miles. And so, I think um, particularly when you're carrying a bit of a rucksack, poles make a huge mm. difference. When you haven't got a rucksack, yeah. I'm less convinced about them because they perhaps can interfere mm. with your um, technique unless you're really smooth. But as soon as yeah, you get into these longer events, yeah. actually with a rucksack, you are it, it just helps your balance. And in the sand mm. and the MDS, I would think mm. they're almost, you know, you've, you would want to nail pole use. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's. It, I think you're right. I think you have to get the technique right, and I haven't got my technique nailed. You don't want to be pushing the. You don't want to be swinging the poles too far out in mm. front of you because then they 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 kind of break. They work it. They work against you. They work as a break, don't they? Yeah. They want to. They want to be slightly behind you, and they want to be pushing you. So you're yeah. doing this sort of constant, almost sort of controlled falling motion forward. Um, so yeah, so that's another thing I'm going to be. Uh, be working on over coming weeks is working out how to use my uh yeah. my poles and so properly. one of the last things i wanted to ask you about was um about insulin pump you mentioned already <laughs> that you were due for one is that going to be you're hoping to i mean the technology is incredible here you talk about you know the constant monitoring of your blood sugar and then the insulin pump on top you can see mm. how actually in the you know another 10 or 20 years the way that type 1 diabetics get their insulin delivered could be very different um yeah, you're hoping so- to get an insulin pump soon yeah, yeah. So um, I'm told September. So by the time I do snowed early in 100, I should have an insulin pump. So that should make a huge difference. Yeah. Um, a guy called Roddy Riddle, who's um, look him up if anyone's anyone's interested in 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 type one diabetics who are completely um, uh, well not not letting the condition um, stop them from achieving their their goals. Roddy Riddle was the, I, I believe the first and only type one diabetic to complete the marathon disab. He did it in 2013. Right. Um, he, he tells me that he don't, he doesn't think he would have been able to complete it without an insulin pump. Um, okay. mainly because, because you're, you're constantly, it, it, it's almost like an external pancreas in that it's drip yeah. feeding insulin. Um, as and when you need it, if you're doing multiple daily injections, as soon as you've injected that insulin into your body, it's there. You can't take it out of your body. The only way to, if you've given yourself too much, the yeah, only yeah. way to make sure that your blood sugar doesn't go too low is to eat and reduce the amount of exercise you're doing. Yeah. Um, with an with an insulin pump, you, 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 there is less of a risk of giving yourself too much insulin i suppose um yeah so um he tells me that that was absolutely key to him completing the marathon to sub he's gone on to do some amazing I know. things i'm he's, just looking at his website i hadn't come across yeah. him and actually interestingly yeah. he was type one at the age of 40 which is um indeed and, yeah you know obviously quite late yes no, yeah right. um and he, I mean, he, 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 he was a professional athlete before that. I think he represented yeah, um, says it, says it. Great, great Britain 
in cycling. Yeah, he's um, inter- ex-international road cyclist here, yeah. Yeah. So whereas whereas I spent my 20s um, drinking beer and smoking fags, he spent his um, 20s uh, <laughs> representing Britain um, yeah. as, a, as a cyclist. So um, yeah. he, he, you could you could argue that maybe he, he has more of a sort of predisposition, pre, predisposition for these wow. sorts of things. But um, I'll put, he, I'll, he's, I'll definitely he's put a huge... Yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll put the link in the show notes for sure. Yeah, do, do. He's a huge inspiration. He's doing some really good things for, for diabetics around the world and he's raising money as well. So, um, yeah. he, he's a, fa- he's a fantastic guy as well. I've met him, met him once and spoken to him a few times. He's a, he's a lovely guy. So, yeah, we'll yeah. link to that because so, that's also a great resource for you. And mm. clearly, type one diabetes these days with a little bit of knowledge. Yeah. There's, there's very little should be hold. It shouldn't really, it shouldn't be holding exactly. back. Yeah, and that I, I think that's kind of the main main thing I I, I, I try to I'd, I'd like to get across in in the videos and the and the writing I do mm. um, about this is that so long as you look after yourself um, um, and, and and inform yourself as well as possible, there's nothing that it it, it should stop you doing really. So um, yeah. yeah. Well, Rob, I think you're doing an incredible job yourself in representing type 1 diabetics and, you know, being an inspiration. Where can you mention the videos and writing there? Where can we find out a little bit more about you? So um, my website is diabeticdadruns.com. So um, I write there. You'll find regular posts about um, running ridiculously long distance with type 1 diabetics, of course, but also family life with type 1 diabetes, etc. You can find me on, on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube as well. Um, I love doing videos, so I, I, I'm doing more and more videos about running and, and, and diabetes. Um, and uh, I also do um, high in, high intensity interval training as well, CrossFit, yeah. um, which is which I find is a great way to, to to keep me fit and keep me injury free. Actually, for, for for the running, I think it's key that you don't if, if you're a runner running isn't the only thing you you should be doing to make sure you can carry on doing what you love you also need to be making sure that you're you're keeping your your body conditioned as well as possible so i I write a bit about crossfit as well um yeah so that that's where you can find me um and any i'd love to love to hear from any other type one diabetics or or running freaks like me as well um so yeah (laughs) Yeah, it'd be great to hear from anyone. Yeah, Rob, that's been absolutely fabulous. There's so much there. Um, thank you so much for coming on, and I look forward to hearing more about your exploits. Okay, cheers, Ian. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blokeology.io. Uh, you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blokeology, at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating. That would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blokeology.io. Thanks again. Thank you.